Grace, mercy, and peace be and abide with each of you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior, the one who is the narrow door. You know, as I uh, reflect uh, over uh, 20 years ago to uh, our time at the seminary, one of the things that uh, I think we gain the most by uh, the seminary time is the sense of community, uh, being around uh, fellow uh, classmates who are being prepared, and that's the idea uh, of the word seminary from the Latin seedbed, where we're being literally sprouted to begin that uh, journey of growing as, well, shepherds, uh, theologians. But one of the things that you'll find uh, many who went to the seminary enjoy was being able to sit around with their classmates and discuss the scriptures, discuss and dialogue on theological questions. Now, it's actually a, a wonderful thing for each of us to still to do, but, but there is a, uh, an inherent uh, danger involved with doing so. We study it and we converse about it, but in kind of an abstract way, rather than allowing the living, very Word of God to penetrate our hearts and speak to us. Because this is not just some area of knowledge or some area for uh, us as individuals, and I am not referring just to pastors or teachers or others who serve in some uh, uh, career or ministry within the church, but I'm talking about all of us. It's not an area where we're just trying to garner and gain enough knowledge that we might somehow be considered an expert. This is about us growing in our relationship and our understanding and application of that word to our lives. So here in uh, the Gospel of Luke, particularly uh, the section that we are in right now, uh, we hear uh, this phrase that again reminds us of what Jesus is doing and where he is headed. Uh, the text talks about how uh, he was going from one town and village to another, te teaching and proceeding or heading on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, that's nice. I appreciate having a little bit of a, a GPS update. Where are you, Jesus? You know, what are you currently doing? And we'll talk a little bit more about that significance there uh, momentarily. But in one of those towns, it doesn't tell us where, some person, someone, some guy basically comes up and asks this question, Lord? Are there just a few who will be saved? Now, I bet when you read that question, you're like, you know what, I wanted to ask that question too. Now, we don't really know what this person's mo motives are in asking this question. 
Maybe he saw the increasing opposition that you know, Jesus was facing. You know, maybe he was you know, wrestling with his own religious understanding and belief and you know, where he stood in relationship toward God and, and his own salvation and forgiveness. We don't really know what's behind him asking this question. But um, indeed, he asked a vital question. Are there just a few who are being saved? Every once in a while I run across uh, on the internet or you're reading an article and you come across, uh, you know, the, the new population statistic in the world. And it's mind-boggling. Have you ever come across, uh, you know, that counter that literally counts you know, how many people, and you watch how fast the population is increasing. And sometimes that's almost too much because I can't really fathom 7 billion people, but, you know, having grown up here in Florida and knowing during my high school days we had somewhere between 10 and 11 million people, and now we have 21 million people living here. You look around you and sometimes directly into the eyes or upon the faces of those around you, and you maybe drove here this morning and you will drive back in a little while and you'll recognize how many of your neighbors haven't stirred yet. The paper's still on the driveway, the car's exactly where it was, and you're maybe going to say, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? A very fair question for us to ask. It is indeed something easy for us to do to ask this question about others, not about ourselves. It's not about us. I mean, well, we're here. We're good. We read a text like this, and rather than allow that word by the Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts and to speak into our lives, we're so busy applying it to others. Yeah, you guys better make sure you're believing right. You better straighten up. You better get to church. You may not say any of that out loud, or maybe you do, or in some form. But you notice it's more than those things that I just noted. Yeah, you better really believe in Jesus. You need, and now to the text again, you need to actively contend for your faith. Contend. Let's be honest. So easy to point fingers comparing ourselves to others. I'm here. I'll give an offering. I pray sometimes. 
I say I'm a Christian. If the surveyor calls me on my phone, I'll tell him I'm a Christian. I love this season of the church year. This long season of Pentecost, this green season that again reminds us of the very heart of God. The very heart of God, which is that of mission. Our God is not out to get people, but He is out instead to reach people and to lead them home into His presence, into His arms into eternity and that great banquet that the end of our gospel reading is talking about. And so this reading takes place in a section that some refer to as the travel narrative. And now this is me just back to noting that it said he was heading towards Jerusalem. It begins with chapter 9. And we have this emphasis that, you know, trying to help make sure we don't somehow lose sight of. It's not about all of these miracles. It's not all about, you know, just what he is saying. It's what he's come to do. It's what he has come to accomplish. He will go to Jerusalem. And there, he will take our place. He will suffer. He will die. He will be buried. But he will also be raised from the dead for our sins. My sins. Your sins. So this section of Scripture, this reading, is reminding us that Jesus came to save, to save individuals. And with that in mind, the question asked of Jesus would have made for an interesting theological discussion. Yeah, Jesus, can we sit down and, you know, hey, and, but notice what he didn't do. He didn't say, you know what, let's divide into groups of like three to five. And in your groups, we want you to discuss three questions. No. In fact, some would say Jesus doesn't even really answer the question. But I love the way that with this question, he moves it from an abstract theological uh, 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 speculation and conversation or question, and he turns it around. The man says, will only a few be saved? And Jesus basically turns it around in the Greek, a good way maybe for us to translate this today would be, will the saved be you? See, it's very easy for us to say, well, that's a stupid question. Now, my wife says that's a cuss word, even though it has more than four word letters in it. But isn't it? It's like, well, duh, I'm here. You know, I was confirmed Lutheran. I've been maybe in the church my whole life. Um, you know, all of these things. But I love how he takes it from this, you know, application and pointing to others and he brings it down to the individual, to that man, and to every single person around 
See, remember Jesus was speaking to a crowd made up mostly here of religious Jews. Almost to a person, they believed in the one true God. They were not agnostics. They weren't pagans. They believed in the Hebrew scriptures. They lived uh, basically in accordance with those scriptures. And in giving his answer, Jesus was not addressing a pagan audience. He was talking to a church crowd. People kind of like us. People who assume that they would go to heaven because, well, well, we're good Jews. We go to the temple. We offer our tithe. You know, we don't do certain things on the Sabbath day. We at least tell ourselves we keep the Ten Commandments. I'm certainly not as bad as he. And he gives us some important and practical lessons on the subject of salvation. Salvation requires our earnest effort, our urgent attention, and our continued holding fast to the saving work of Jesus. Maybe within those three things I just noted, I'm going to dig into them a little bit further, but I think the first one maybe is the one that we stumble on maybe the most earnest effort. And Jesus says, continue to contend for your faith. He says this, that it requires earnest effort because the door is narrow. Those aren't my words, by the way. <laughs> Although in our society today, when they might hear a Christian read these words or repeat these words, they would think, you know, you, you Christians, you're so narrow-minded. Right? In our day, those words are here heard as exclusive, unfair, unloving, and they basically will say to us, come on, that's not a loving God, that's unfair. God would never send anyone to hell unless they're really vile or have done something really atrocious. He'll take me just the way I am. And uh, rather than me list out for you the statistics, just go ahead and Google on Christians' statistics for how you get to heaven. It's only like 53% say you get through to heaven by Jesus alone. Of Christians, not Americans, by Jesus alone. And then how many more, you know, believe that, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. Uh, how about this? It's something like, uh, it, it was like 47%, I think, uh, believe that all worship of any religion is accepted by God. We might think this is kind of a rarity that you know, people would uh, discount and deny and reject these solid teachings from the biblical writings of God himself for how we enter the narrow door. But it is very much not just a part of society, but it's entered the church. 
part of the reason why, looking at this today, uh, I've made this effort for myself, but for us, to make sure we're not just saying, yeah, you get them, pastor. Because in what way have we begun to do the same thing, where we're relying more upon the fact is, well, I sit on the board, or, you know, I volunteer here, or, well, I have offering envelopes, and I give an offering, or, you know, I've been Lutheran my whole life, or I've been Christian, you know, uh, since I was baptized, or whatever it was. And Jesus says, continue to contend for the faith. Here's what I love. We can try and try as we may to justify ourselves by our own beliefs and our own actions, but this door that the world around you and me sees as narrow-minded is actually incredibly wide open and loving. What God offers is a door, not a barricade. You hear that? I don't know, the last several days I was in Orlando for meetings with the circuit visitors and then the uh, uh, board of directors for the district, and so um, uh, in my evenings I uh, uh, was taking time just to do my own uh, study, and it was just one of those things that struck me. It's like, it's not a barricade, it's a door. But the world that wants to have some other way to enter into heaven and get to the great banquet, they see that door as a barricade. Well, that's not going to work for me. It's loving. Because he makes it utterly clear about how we enter. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. He who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and is baptized, it says in John, shall be saved, and he who does not believe shall be condemned. It's unbelief that condemns. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes shall be saved. For it is by faith you have been saved. It is not of yourselves, it is the very gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. It goes on and it goes on. It's consistent. It's loving. And one of the reasons I tell myself that quite regularly is when the world around me is changing every single day, I don't have to worry about if God has changed. I don't have to worry about whether the way that I somehow become acceptable to Him and I get to heaven has changed. And to me, that is a loving God. So Jesus says in verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. This word is often used to describe an athletic contest. You know, like two wrestlers who are, you know, you know contending and using all their strength to, you know, 
constrain and hold the other and ultimately uh, to win. Every muscle, muscle. Why? They're striving for victory. My friends, that's the Christian life. That's the life that takes up the cross every day and follows Jesus. Oh yes, some may hear these words and say, see, Christianity is just like every other religion. You have to struggle. You have to do something. Wouldn't it be hard to make that leap, would it? Contend for the faith. so that you will be inside when the door is shut. But, my friends, when we are in Christ, we see that thinking totally twists Jesus' words. We struggle because we are driven by doubt and fear that heaven's door is closed unless we've done something or enough to open it. Yeah, by grace we're saved, but don't I also have to do something to receive that grace? Well, folks, that's not grace alone, faith alone. It's a mixture of work and grace at best. That's the driving force of our sinful flesh. We struggle because the deceiver, Satan, comes at us and tries to fool us into thinking that we're just going, that going to church alone is enough. You don't really have to believe it all. Just go. Or, yes, I believe, but I still have to do something to deserve or have the door open for me. But faith sees things entirely different. Faith sees that the door has been opened already, not by our striving or our efforts, but by Jesus alone. Even in this illustration, Jesus describes the door as already having been opened. Not Jesus doesn't say, contend for the faith that you may enter the door and enter in. No. The door is already open. That's why Jesus came to earth, to make the way straight, to open the door. My friends, this requires our urgent attention because the door will soon be closed. So what is it that we are really standing on? He is coming. There will be a judgment. It will be final. But the phrase of Jesus that catches me is, I do not know you or where you came from. Now, real quickly, that's another one of those that when I read it, I'm like, well, he's talking to them. But wait a minute, didn't it say, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they'll be there, but remember, these are Jews he's talking to. I mean, they know the one true God. They know that he's their creator. They call him Lord, Yahweh. What's going on here? Well, here's what I think we're hearing. 
Those may sound like harsh words, but I would say they are words of compassion. Jesus loves you and me so much that he's giving the people then and he's giving us this warning. Like a parent warning a child of a danger, you know, not to go into that street, not to, you know, go into a certain place where there is great risk and danger and they might be hurt or they might be lost. The warning, it's not enough to know who Jesus is. You hear that? It's not enough to know who Jesus is. We must know him in the biblical way. The word to know means intimately, personally, to be in relationship with him. Hey, look, look, there's Jesus down there. I know who he is. That's not enough. Like it's not enough to say, well, I go to church because, by the way, going to church never made anybody a Christian. It, it doesn't save anybody by going to church. It's what's here in that faith and that relationship with him. Jesus goes on to say, you know, many will try and not be able so just hanging out with him, just following him along the way, just listening to his word and his messages and then going our own way and living our own way, many will try and not be able. So therefore, we come to know him personally, intimately, in his word, in prayer, in returning to our baptism, in feasting at the foretaste of the feast that is to come. But back to this, I do not know where you came from. Here's a little bit of my take. Jesus isn't talking about, I don't know your hometown, I don't know your parents, I don't really know your family. No, that's not what he's doing. He's talking about on what basis do we approach him? Do we approach him based upon our efforts, our works, our good deeds, or do we come to him out of our sin and out of death through what he has done for us? If we come to him based upon what we've done and our accomplishments, he does not know us. If we come to him repentant and out of our sin, he knows us, and He loves us, and He welcomes us. See, I bring nothing, and I leave everything else behind. Kind of reminds me about all our righteous acts are but filthy rags. We do not know the day nor the hour, and so it's essential that we continue to contend, no matter our age, to hold fast, to hold on to Jesus, to hold on to his very word. I'm falling asleep last night about 11.15 after the Gators finally somehow pulled out a win.
And the text was running through my mind, and I said, it's open-ended. Notice how this text ends. It's left open-ended. Because our story is not over yet. And the story of those in your family or neighborhood or wherever you have contact, their story is not over yet. Now's the time. Now's the time. We know not the day nor the hour. What great news when he goes on to say, but people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. It's not just who we think, oh yeah, well they were good people, they were good churchmen. No, no, no. They very well may be there if their faith and relationship with the Lord was based upon what he has done, not what they did. But Jesus is telling these Jews there are going to be pagans and Gentiles and people from every corner and place of the earth there at that great banquet table. So maybe, my friends, maybe this is reminding us with that door still open and this word of Jesus being left open-ended, it is a reminder to us that we who are seeking to follow him and enter through what he has done, may we continue to model through our lives and words that the door is open, that Jesus is the only door, and that all are welcome on his terms, and the time is now. Amen.